Welcome to episode 20 of the Guns and Yoga podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel. In today's episode, I talk with Jonathan Hickory. He's been a police officer for 18 years in Virginia and is the award-winning author of the book, Break Every Chain, that is now a powerful, award-winning movie. I reached out to Jonathan after seeing a Facebook post about his book. As I often do when I stumble upon interesting people, I did a little stalking and reached out to him on LinkedIn. Jonathan and I exchanged a few emails before recording this episode, and although I only just met him, he's one of those guys that's just so easy to talk to, and I feel like I've known him for years. The reason why I think this is the case is that his story just really struck a chord with me. It's so familiar, so personal for me, and it rings true, um, and reminds me of other aspects of other people's stories that I've heard over the years, friends, peers, and coworkers. And it also made me think about why storytelling is so important and the whole platform for this podcast. It's one of the best ways that we can teach, influence, and inspire each other. And it forges connections among us, our culture, our unique sister and brotherhood. Hearing stories like Jonathan's helps us relate on an intuitive level like no other and reminds us we are not alone. In this episode, Jonathan and I discuss the loss of his father and the pain of being bullied as a teen, his experience of trying to reach out to an experienced officer for help, and the shame that he felt when he was shut down with the old school mentality. He discusses how his unresolved trauma led him down the path of self-destruction and how he went from officer of the year one year to landing an IA being stripped of his badge and gun, and the worst part was that he was ordered not to talk to anyone. Jonathan candidly discusses how his work as a fatal crash investigator impacted him and how the devastating loss of his second child hardened his heart. Jonathan credits his healing to both his faith-based marriage counselor and his police psychologist, the support of his loving wife, Stacy, his three beautiful children, and his faith in God. If you find value in this episode, please share it, give us a review, and if you'd like to be notified of future episodes and want to receive our future newsletter, you can subscribe on our Podbean website or email us at wendy at bluelineyoga.com. I'd love to hear from you with your questions, suggestions for future guests or topics you'd like to hear about, and I'd really like to get feedback on this episode too. So today I'm really looking forward to talking to Jonathan Hickory. He's a master police officer in an agency in Virginia, and he is also the author of the book, Break Every Chain, which has now become a movie. He is also very active in his church. He's a dad, a husband, and has a very full life is what it sounds like. So welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you so much, Wendy. It is my pleasure to be on with you. Yeah. And so even though the listeners can't see us, we can see each other. And what's really cool is that you're sitting outside and we're hearing some nice nature sounds from, you said you just had a storm there, right? Yeah. It's like the calm after the storm. So we got some crickets and some birds chirping and it's very, very nice, cool summer evening. Yeah. I like that. I like that. It's a little warm here in Kansas right now. So I'm a little jealous. So Jonathan, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about your book and your movie. But before that, um, I, I was telling you before we got started that I don't really know a whole lot about your story, but I was very intrigued. Um, I have a friend who posted something on social media about your book 
and I just kind of started stalking you quite honestly. <laughs> and, uh, I thought you had a really unique story and, and really anytime anyone wants to share what they have been through and navigated and overcome adversity, especially in law enforcement. Um, I, I really, that's, that's the whole platform of this podcast is for people to share stories. So I really appreciate your willingness to do that with us. No, that's what it's all about. It's trying to help others. You know, it's, um, when people overcome something uh, as great as uh, I have overcome and as great as uh, so many other heroes overcome, you, you have to help others, you know, and kind of carry those buckets of water for those that are still in the pits of hell. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, so, so how long have you been a police officer for? Uh, just a couple days ago was my 18-year mark. Wow, congratulations. That's a pretty long amount of time to be in this profession <laughs> nowadays it definitely <laughs> seems like it is yeah um so i have eight more years uh full time if i go to you know full retirement gotcha okay and so what i always like to ask this question because it's always a little bit different for everyone what inspired you or what made you decide to become a police officer was it something you always knew you wanted to do or how did that pan out for you um, no, I don't think I always knew I wanted to do it. Um, I, it, it's actually part of my story really. It's, you know, I lost my father early in life. Um, I grew up in originally in a uh, small town, New England. And when I was 12 years old, after battling for 13 months against ter terminal cancer, my father uh, passed away mm. and, you know, he died at home. We took care of him for about three months before he passed away. And so my life was completely turned upside down. You know, I have um, three siblings, there's four children total. My mom and dad had been married for uh, 23 years uh, when when my father passed away. He was only 49 mm. uh, and my mom was uh, 43. So, you know, that uh, began three months later, we moved uh, 600 plus miles away to the state of Virginia and uh, we're 12 hours away now from any support system that I had previously, uh, church, um, school, family, friends, things like that. So, you know, that made so for like some rough teenage years, and I had a very low self-esteem. Um, I was kind of a nerdy kid uh, at that point, and I isolated, and I, um, I loved computers, and um, I uh, also was battling a lot of anger and a lot of depression. Um, I was angry at just the world. You know, I, I was angry at myself. Like I was angry at God for, uh, like taking my dad. I was angry at myself for not being a better son and like not saying I loved you more. And, you know, just mm -hmm. things that you think about, um, when you're 12 years, 12 years old. Um, and, uh, so my teenage years were really, really hard. Uh, I was bullied and uh, that I think uh, struck a chord with me, you know, like mm -hmm. let justice be done. Um, but uh, sorry, there's there's a school bus going by. So I apologize that, for that's the audio. Okay. I, I assume that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as I uh, came into early adulthood, you know, I was uh, job hopping quite a bit and I finally found uh, a career in computers. And things were going pretty well until 9-11 hit. Uh, when 9-11 hit, uh, I found myself unemployed and I really wanted to pursue law enforcement at that point because mm -hmm. my birthday is also on the same day as 9-11. Oh, wow. And 
I remember like 9-11-01, uh, when the towers fell, I went, I left work that day, and I went and bought a gun for my birthday present to myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, I want to do something. I want to make a difference here. Um, and so that's when I became interested in law enforcement. When I found myself unemployed, I, I'm like, well, I need a job that uh, I can have job security. And I guess there's always going to be crime. So that's kind of what led me into it. Wow. So you were how old when you made that decision? Uh, well, well, I went in for it the first time when I was 22. I didn't get hired until I was 23. Okay. So you were still fairly young. Yes. Yes. Way too young. <laughs> well, and, and you know, it's it's really interesting that you gave us all of that for your background because I, I know that you, you teach a lot at your agency on, on this topic. And so much of what impacts us as adults um, has started early on, which, you know, I only recently really understood the connection between the two. So I appreciate you sharing all of that because um, I think a lot of people listening can maybe really relate to what you just said. And coming into this profession, just for, for different people, it's different. Like how full that, that pot is of what we've already got going on before we even start this job. So, so I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, I think it's really important to realize because mm-hmm. a lot of people that struggle uh, in law enforcement with the trauma, the vicarious trauma, and the trauma that they face every day, uh, they're the ones often that you can look back and find something earlier in their life that traumatized them and that they're carrying around even before they get into the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So you get on with your agency. I assume is it I don't know if you if you are with the same agency that you started with, but uh, nonetheless, 18 years later, when when did you um, start to notice? I guess if I'm going to ask this the right way, that you might be in trouble or things were amiss. Um, well, I I got married um, about three months after I completed my field training program, so uh, everything seemed to be going well for me at that point. Um, you know, my I felt like finally I was starting to thrive and my life was going well. I had mm-hmm. a great new job and I had this beautiful, uh, amazing wife. You know, uh, she also was raised in a, in a Christian home and just an amazing, amazingly sweet girl, my wife, Stacy. And um, so this was all happening at once. And I never had a problem with any kind of substance abuse. I never had any addictions or anything like that. Um, when I got into police work, you know, uh, at, at first it was all very fun and new, exciting. Mm-hmm. You're, you want to lock up the bad guys. You want to, you know, shoot guns. You want to drive fast. You want to do all that stuff that you, that you see on TV. And then the reality of it starts to set in. Mm-hmm. Um, and the things that you never see in the job description, like, you know, must be able to handle scenes with infant death. You know, that's never in the job description. Right. Uh, must be able to you know, um, investigate motor vehicle crashes with, you know, burning families, you know, stuff like that is never, you never think about that stuff. So the reality of it, uh, began to set in and, um, I found myself in a, in a very strange place where I felt like I couldn't talk to anybody about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew that I had to be tough and I'd signed up to be a cop. Um, I saw how other people, other officers, uh, just kind of, shook it off and like it was nothing and even when I went to a senior officer later in my career I remember him laughing at me um Mm. telling I was telling him that I had you know nightmares and recurring images and uh he just said 
you got to suck it up and you got to let it roll off your back, you know. And I'm like, well, that's really helpful, you know. Wow. I'll, I'll, rem- I'll remember not to, you know, uh, ever ask you about um, for help, you know, regarding that. And this was, guy was like a mentor to me. But uh, so it was probably about the two year mark to answer your question that I that I started to turn to alcohol as a coping mechanism. You know, it's so culturally accepted in law enforcement. Um, and I knew that everyone else was drinking as well. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like it was okay. And I justified it because I was on midnight shift and, you know, like I needed it to sleep and things like that. But um, soon it started to become something that I really um, let into my life as a problem. And, uh, you know, for t- before I knew it, 10 years of my life had gone by and I was a functioning alcoholic mm-hmm. uh, to the point that I had to drink every day. And to the point that I would hide my drinking, um, my liquor and things like that from my wife. And, uh, you know, even as like we had our first daughter together and I tried to quit and I wanted to be a good dad because my dad died when I was young. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, you know, I just kept going back to it. I was fully addicted and um, I just denied it, you know, like, well, I would never drive drunk. So, you know, I'm not an alcoholic or, you know, like. I know that uh, I'm still going to work every day, so, you know, I'm not an alcoholic. But the truth was that I had to drink, you know, every day. And if I didn't, I would become extremely irritable and I would get like uh, physical withdrawal symptoms where I would feel things um, felt like things were crawling on me. And so it was a real problem and it ruled my life for a long time. Wow, that's pretty powerful and sounds just a lot like other people that I've spoken with that have been in a similar situation that you just described. So, um, but just to back up, you know, you said something earlier that just kind of really took me back because you actually tried to reach out for help. You said you had a mentor and you, you let him know what was happening and he, and he brushed you off. And I, I just, it makes me wonder, you know, it must've taken a lot of courage for you to approach him about that in the first place. And, and I'm guessing that that, that was pretty significant. It, it made me feel shameful. Um, mm-hmm. It made me feel like I was somehow weak and broken. And, you know, why was everyone else able to handle it? And I wasn't. So um, it made me question myself. And yes, this was a senior officer, someone that I looked up to, someone that I uh, was a mentor to me. And, you know, he was this old school mentality. Uh, and the old school mentality, unfortunately, is what oftentimes causes people not to reach out for the help that they need yep and that eventually can lead to self-harm you know and suicide yeah unfortunately you know you i use those exact words when i talk about this stuff just suck it up it's part of the job it's what you signed up for and and it's not no it's, it's not what i signed up for it's I absolutely signed up to help people right you know I, because i care and um, you know, I never thought that it would change my life as much as it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, uh, you know, what's interesting is that while I was struggling internally and while my marriage was falling apart and while I continued to lean on substance abuse as a coping mechanism, my, my career thrived. And, wow. uh, you know, I was officer of the year in a, you know, 145, 150 man department, um, and I'm not saying that to boast. It's just like that's when your life is when your personal life is falling apart and all you have left is your your job, um, then 
that's all you wrap your life around is is that's your new identity you know Mm -hmm. and so that's where where it becomes a suicide risk because if you be then have a problem with your career then you have nothing left right and and really you truly were the definition of a functioning alcoholic if you were performing to the extent that you were you know being awarded the officer of the year that's i mean that's pretty significant so you obviously were not i mean because sometimes it seems like it is hard to to separate all of that out when you're struggling with alcohol and things are hard at home it does typically have an impact when people come to work and it doesn't appear that that was the case at least not that anyone caught on to right i think that um only when it gets to the point where like somebody could maybe smell it on your breath the next day or you come into work and it's still in your blood uh that can be uh you know a problem but um i just never i was very careful about that um but it's just one of those things where um cops are great actors and we don't want anyone to know that we're broken Mm -hmm. and that there's something you know off in our personal lives or something wrong with us and so we put on this facade and it starts with the uniform and it works our way, works its way backwards. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. So for you, what was the, if there was a turning point or if it just, if it was one moment or was it a series of moments that just made you realize I, I can't continue like this? Um, what really changed my life was uh, my wife and I uh, had a five-year-old daughter uh, at the time and uh, in 2013, we were pregnant with our second child, and this was a small glimmer of hope. I was already in a very dark place at this point. Um, I wasn't crazy about having another kid at first, uh, but I started to warm up to the idea. I was filled with with a lot of bitterness and cynicism, and uh, I felt like the world was a very dark place, and I, and I shuddered at the thought of bringing another child into the world. Uh, but, uh, you know, I started to warm up to the idea. I had built the crib. I had, um, listened to, to the, you know, placed my, my face against my wife's stomach and, and listened to the baby. Uh, I remember our marriage was so on the rock. So I went to one of our ultrasound appointments and we got an argument in the waiting room, like in the room mm-hmm. while we were waiting for the doctor or whatever. And like, after that, I didn't go to any more. That's how bad you know, our relationship was. Oh, wow. It was was very sad because we were so in love uh, when we got married. We were engaged for over three years. Um, And so uh, we started having uh, complications with the pregnancy. And about five months into the pregnancy, in the 20th week, um, we, uh, it was a Sunday afternoon in October, and uh, our firstborn son was born at home, deceased in our bathroom. Um, I'm so sorry. Thank you. I appreciate that, Wendy. Um, I can talk about it now, but it wrecked me. Mm, Um, I can't imagine. I was already in such like a hopeless, dark place. Mm -hmm. And I had been a, uh, at that point, I had been a fatal crash reconstruction officer for uh, about five years. And so I was very the death was always swirling around me. I, I did not deal well with death because of the death of my father. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize the connection at the time. But uh, in retrospect, maybe being coming a fatal crash guy was not a good idea, right? But <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> the, the more you know, right? Um, so 
it was uh, it was this thing where I, all this death that had swirled around me in my career for so long, I felt like I was tiptoeing through it, had now come into my home and into my heart. Mm, yeah. Wow. And suddenly I found this like new heavy darkness uh, cast over me, um, like no darkness I've ever known, like no heaviness I've ever, I've ever known. And uh, I tried to fix it every way that I knew how. Uh, my other coping mechanisms outside of drinking were things like working out at the gym mm -hmm. um, and angry music and um, uh, motorcycle rides like I enjoy riding. But none of that stuff worked. None of that, none of that stuff, stuff would, would heal my this huge hole, dark hole in my heart. Um, and so I started to self-destruct. And, you know, that's something I've learned as I teach classes about trauma now and mental resilience is that unresolved trauma will destroy you. Mm -hmm. uh, Self-destructive behavior is actually quite normal with unresolved trauma. Um, I began uh, to any call with a knife or a gun. Uh, I was always the one first one to go there. Um, you know, reckless behavior in my marriage. Uh, there was infidelity in affairs, mm -hmm. um, something I'm extremely ashamed of and not proud of but it is part of the story and uh you know my wife knew nothing about it and we became more and more distant um i couldn't look her in the eye i couldn't be in the same room with her i somehow i almost associated her with the death and obviously that was completely unfair and irrational but that was my screwed up broken traumatized mind you know um, trying to rationalize it without getting help mm -hmm. Um, so 18 months after uh, I went into self-destruct mode, um, as I swirled downward into this, uh, you know, downward spiral, I found myself in internal affairs for the first time in my career, uh, having just been awarded officer of the year the mm -hmm. year prior. And um, I was told that I was being investigated uh, for conduct on becoming of an officer, and uh, it was because of the infidelity. And... I was told to turn in my, you know, they put the tape recorder down and they said, you know, turn in your lock codes, your password, your um, laptop and your your uh, department phone and all that. And you, oh, and by the way, you can't talk about this with anyone. So I knew I couldn't talk about it with my wife. And uh, now I wasn't allowed to talk about it with any of my friends because now all my friends were, were cops and I deleted all, you know, all of my other friends which is also foolish, you know, we need other people in our lives. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so I went home, they sent me home early, and I went home and I pondered, you know, well, I'm gonna lose my job, because this is a fireable offense. I'm gonna lose my uh, wife, because she's gonna find out. And I'm gonna lose my daughter, because she's gonna go with my wife. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this voice in my head said, you know, just end it all. Mm -hmm. uh, it's time, you know, you're, you've, you've, um, there's no coming back from this and uh just just end your life mm -hmm. uh and the the weapon of course is always close by and it was the most sickening dark moment of my life and in that moment like the battle for my soul was raging mm. um i had like this strange vision of like fire i don't know if i felt like you know it was me believing i was going to go to hell or if i did that or i have no idea what it was but it scared me enough to snap out of it for a second and say, wait a minute, if you do this, there is no coming back. Yeah. And, and other people are going to suffer. So, um, so that was the moment that uh, I broke down and I 
you know, started to talk to God and I said, God, like, if you're even there, because, you know, at, but prior to that, I really struggled with belief in God. Um, you know, he had taken my father from me, he had taken my firstborn son from me. And not that I was living in any capacity for God, but I felt like he kind of sucked. Um, <laughs> but I said, God, like, I've done everything I can and, and I've brought myself to the end of me. So, you know, it's your turn. Um, so I started to go to church after that and I started to, you know, um, you know, try to better my life and try, tried to cut back on my drinking. And, um, it took about two months to get through the investigation. And at the end of the two months, uh, I was told, uh, that, um, I wasn't going to lose my job, but I was being disciplined and I was going to, you know, night shift and they put me in an old crown Vic and, like they did everything that, you know, I'm grateful to have my job at this point, but you know, I, uh, continued to lie to my wife and I didn't tell her why mm. uh, I was being disciplined. I didn't tell her about the investigation. I thought I could get away with it. Um, but God revealed that to her eventually anyway. And then we went into crisis mode when we went into crisis mode and she had found out about this, my sins against her. Um, that was a hard place to be. And, and I've been rambling for a minute, so I'll let you talk. No, I'm just taking it all in. I'm you're I'm just letting you talk. It's okay. But I, I do want to, I just want to make one comment, really. The very first thing you said um, about, you know, the loss of your son, and you talked a lot about how it impacted you. But what I can't get out of my head is how hard that must have been for your wife and your daughter too. I mean, so this is not just impacting you, which of course, obviously this is your story, but your family too. I mean, this is significant loss for all of you. Absolutely. It's, it's our story. No, you're yeah. right. It's not yeah. just my story. Uh, I don't think it's fair to, to say that I was the only one hurting, you know, S Stacy was hurting as well. And, um, you know, we had this after the, the loss of our son, um, we had this very brief period where we drew closer to each other, mm -hmm. but, but then it was gone. You know, yeah. it was, um, I started hurting so bad that, um, and I just knew that I, I didn't need help cause I was tough. I'm a tough guy. I'm a tough sure. cop and yeah. counseling doesn't work. It's, it's a bunch of, bunch of BS. That's what I would think. My heart was so hardened, um, that I was not open to any of that. Um, but counseling saved my life and saved my marriage, interestingly mm -hmm. enough, because uh, when we did ha hit that crisis mode, when she found out about, you know, the infidelity and stuff, um, I was so petrified that I was going to lose her. And, you know, that's why I was not going to tell her, because I was so ashamed and so afraid to tell her. Um, but uh, our church helped us to find uh, a faith-based counselor, uh, a marriage counselor, and it was between that and a police psychologist that I also started to see mm -hmm. that they, I thought that the marriage counseling was going to be all about the marriage. And it turned out, Wendy, that it was all about how screwed up I was, you know, <laughs> I remember the, the marriage counselor, uh, hearing all the stuff that I'd been through, hearing my story, uh, talking about the infidelity, talking about the loss of my father. And she looked at me when I was finally done and she said, wow. I'm surprised you're doing as well as you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, wait, you've seen worse? Like, <laughs> so that helped me a little bit in that moment. But, uh, you know, we did five months of uh, faith-based marriage counseling, and it went all the way back to the loss of my father. 
like I had never faced it. And I was carrying it around with me mm-hmm. every day um, to the point that every time I watched The Lion King and Mufasa died, I would cry. Yeah. Um, you know, so. That so is that a sad was, movie, though. I mean, you know, it is. <laughs> it's okay to cry when Mufasa dies. It's, right. It's okay. But, yeah, no, it was just something that, like, you know, if that's something that's so important to realize is that if you have trauma in your life and you don't face it and you're not coping with it well, ultimately over time it's going to one-up you it's going to destroy your life yeah and you're actually really fortunate and i'm so glad you found um uh, one or two therapists or counselors that work so well for you without having to to try multiple counselors no we we were very blessed um because uh we it seemed like we got connected to the right people yeah. at the right time. That's important. So after seeing the marriage counselor and also a police psychologist, you said, um, yes. how, how soon after that did you start to realize that your alcohol dependency needed something needed to change there? Cause it doesn't sound like it was like an overnight thing. I'm just moving a little bit because uh, it felt like the signal was starting to get weak. Oh, um, no, no problem. Uh, so the alcohol actually on the night that we went into crisis mode mm-hmm. when my wife had found out and my, my mom actually got involved and there was like this intervention type thing going on. And I, you know, I opened my heart and I, um, I, confessed to everything and I cried and I laid on the floor and you know I just I knew that there was no hiding it anymore and that night um, my wife told me like she said I'm not going to kick you out of the house but you're going to be on the couch because like we it was because we had a five-year-old daughter and she didn't want our five-year-old daughter asking questions Um, and I remember uh, that night I had a, I was sitting on the couch, my new, my new assigned bed, mm-hmm. and I had uh, a beer bottle in my hand as usual, and I could hear across the house. All I could hear was my wife weeping, Aww. and I just felt like such a complete piece of garbage, such a complete piece of trash. And I'm looking down at this bottle in my hand, and I'm like, and I hear this voice. And I, I think it was God, but, you know, I hear this voice say, change your ways and stop drinking or I will take everything from you. Mm. And that kind of gave me those goosebumps and I got scared and I put the bottle down and I said, okay, like, please take this from me because I, I can't do this on my own. Um, and I woke and I put it down and I didn't touch it again that night. And the the next morning, like... I told my wife uh, that I had been hiding my drinking problem from her for over 10 years. And she helped me clear the house of alcohol. She became my accountability partner, even while she was super pissed at me, by the way. like <laughs> She sounds like a really great woman. You're lucky. <laughs> I No, I really believe she was appointed for me. Like, I don't deserve her. I know that. Mm. I don't deserve her mercy or her forgiveness or her grace. But, um, but I, you know, just going back to that moment like that was the last time i touched alcohol and that was oh that was six years ago that was august of 2015 congratulations that's awesome yeah thank you so much it's it's a much better life 
And, um, you know, people will ask me, like, will you ever take another drink again? And, you know, I really don't think I will. And it's not because I don't think I could handle one beer or whatever, but there's two reasons that I won't touch it again. Number one is I don't need it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have such a, a, a much better life now without it um, that why would I bring that back into my life, especially after I struggled for so long with it? And um, the other reason is uh, Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all things, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So I'm going to guard my heart, especially in an area where I had um, such a weakness. Mm. Um, I'm going to layer the armor right there and stay away from it. Um, But, you know, the, the healing journey has been a very long one, Wendy. And over the years, I've learned, you know, how to be resilient and how to heal from your trauma and, uh, you know, therapies, how important they are. Um, but uh, it's not just me that's healed. You know, my wife has healed. Our marriage has been restored. And since um, August of 2015, when we went into this crisis mode, um, we've had two beautiful children since then. Mm, congratulations. Um, thank you so much. So we have, uh, you know, a now an 11-year-old. My daughter, Anna, is now 11, almost 12. Uh, we have Zachariah, who is almost five, and then we have baby Hope, and she she's really more of a toddler now because she's almost 14 months, but um, she's our blue-eyed baby girl, and uh, I just have this uh, amazing new outlook on life that it's that we deserve to live the life we've been given, and that we deserve to live free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so inspiring, and I know when other people hear this, they're they're going to think the same thing, so... Thank you for just speaking so openly and honestly uh, and candidly about everything that you've been through. I am curious because, you know, we talked a little bit before we hit record about a little bit about what I do, um, but I do see a lot of people that have addiction issues. I mean, I encounter them just, you know, doing peer support and some other things. So what I am always curious about is everyone's journeys to healing are different not, there's no one right way. There's no one right path. Uh, so it sounds like you stopped and you've never gone back. Did you go to, I'm just curious, like any support groups or anything beyond therapy and your wife, which sounds like an amazing accountability partner. Was there anything else that, that you did along those lines? Yeah, there was tons. So first of all, um, you know, at first, uh, when I first said, God, like I surrender to you, uh, and I tried to cut back on my drinking, and it was a struggle. Like, mm-hmm. I couldn't do it by myself, and but I was still trying to do it by myself, and, and it was like this battle I was fighting all by myself. Um, I was also fighting the battle of the investigation going on, you know, mm-hmm. wondering if I was going to lose my job. Uh, and, uh, and when you're struggling with that for two months, it takes, it, it takes its toll on you. I think I lost uh, 15 pounds uh, just from the stress. Um, but I started going to a men's group. It's so that's group therapy and it doesn't have to be, it was a men's Bible study group, but it doesn't have to be that it it can be any kind of group therapy Mm -hmm. can be helpful. Uh, because one of the beautiful things about group therapy is that not only do you get other people's perspectives on things, but you start to realize that you're not the only one that's screwed up. Mm -hmm. You're not the only one that's broken. We are, we're all broken in different ways. And so I think there's comfort in knowing that you're not alone in that. Um, Other than group therapy uh, and a police psychologist, 
and the faith-based marriage counselor, <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, started serving. So volunteer, volunteering, serving my, in my church. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that you're serving in your church, but, you know, serving in a, in something that helps others, uh, makes you feel like you have a purpose, makes you feel like you matter and that you're doing something that, that matters. And so that was helpful for me as well. Um, and starting to diversify my friend's portfolio really mm -hmm. helped. So when all that you have is friends, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but when all of your, when you become a cop, you usually start, um, especially when you're younger, you start getting rid of all of your friends who aren't cops or not really talking to them as much as, because they just don't get it, you know, and they ask you all these stupid questions and, you know, like, what, have you ever shot anybody? And, you know, like, <laughs> Yeah. So, so <laughs> I know that I, I started hanging out with only other cops, uh, off duty. And so every time you're hanging out with other cops off duty, the conversation always goes back to work and you can't, you know, it's like 24 seven, you can't get away from it. Um, you know, you start to live and breathe the job and, and now your friends are all cops too. And, you know, so if you are struggling with something and, uh, you know, Cops can be some of the worst people to talk to just because they're so used to hearing people's problems and they don't want to hear it. They want to get to the point of how can we, how can we fix that? You know, how can we get, fix this call right now? You know, have you thought about a protective order? You know, whatever, like, mm -hmm. and so they don't want to hear all the details. They don't want to hear the sob story. And so, um, that's one of the things that's helped me is, and that came with the men's group is I suddenly had all these like brothers that, would pray with me and talk to me about stuff that I, that I needed help with and I was struggling with. So that was a beautiful thing. Um, and as those things um, started to help with my healing, then I started realizing the importance of, you know, maintenance therapies, like exercise, you know, like for me, riding a motorcycle, um, there's, it might be paddle boarding for you, you know, mm -hmm. it might be, uh, knitting it might be you know whatever horseback riding so you have to find a therapy that works for you mm -hmm. you know i think that's why a lot of these like veteran programs they use like sailing and fly fishing because it's therapeutic to kind of reconnect with nature reconnect with creation um get out and do something that makes you kind of forget about the world for a while right Right. Amazing. And it sounds like, so, cause I know you, you mentioned peer support in your current role and, but what you just described by your men's group and how that was really beneficial. I mean, that's its own brand of peer support, just that group support. Yes, absolutely. And I still go to that men's group today. I was actually just asked to be one of the leaders, uh, uh, for the group. So, um, you, you know, that's an honor as well, but yeah, it's it's one of those things that even after you feel like you're doing better, you don't quit it. You know? Right. Like if the counselor tells you, okay, I think you're okay, like doesn't mean that you don't um, go back if you're starting to struggle again. Mm -hmm. And just because you are, you know, you've been in the in a group um, environment for a long time, well, now you know as you've healed and you've learned how to cope in healthy ways let's pass that knowledge along yeah. and help somebody else that's hurting, you know? Yeah, definitely. And so if you don't mind, I want to kind of take this moment to, to transition to what, what you're doing at work with peer support. How, how does that, how does your agency or in your role, how do you, 
how does that work? Or is it something that you volunteer for? Um, is it something that you fell into that you started because of your, your background or? Um, we had, we had a team for years, but I didn't even know it. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, it's one of those. So some agencies are really bad about advertising their peer support. And I feel like there should be flyers up in, in the bathrooms, in the mail room, like, you know, like, don't forget about us. We're here for you. Something like that. And, uh, we're like, instead, uh, the department I work for, it's almost like we're ninjas and we um, kind of go in behind the scenes when somebody has, we know somebody was exposed to something awful. Um, and that's damage repair. I think that it, it we're, I mean, we are, we are an established um, peer support team, but at the same time, I just feel like it should be promoted more to kind of help destroy that stigma that exists against uh, getting help and talking about it. So that's my role currently. I also teach a, uh, a class at our police academy, which is a regional academy, uh, to veteran cops on um, resilience, mental wellness, and suicide prevention. Oh, great. So you do that how frequently at your agency? Uh, this year I'm teaching it three times. Okay. It's an eight-hour class, um, so they, they kind of stick it in there at the end of a 40-hour uh, in-service, and so like all these old school guys that are that really need it uh, get it, and they even when they don't sign up for it. So how how does that go when people are mandated to go to that kind of training? What what's your experience with that? So it's it's usually very different than if you advertise the class as a standalone and people sign up because they want to take it. Right. Um, you start to see more people that are willing to take it, mm -hmm. but uh, there's it's that old school mentality. You know, it's those guys that have been around forever that that suck it up buttercup mentality, and quite honestly, that mentality is what's killing our cops um, because it makes people afraid to get to get the help that they need, and even the guys that say that suck it up, even if they're suffering in silence, they won't get the help they need because they think that you know they're weak. And so those guys will be there, and they'll be in the very back, and they'll have their arms crossed, and I don't let it phase me. I just keep on doing what I'm doing, and, you know, I know that they're hearing me, and, you know, they need to be there just as much as the next guy. So if I reach them, wonderful. If I don't, you know, at least they were there. Right. So... As far as your book, can you tell us your book is titled Break Every Chain? Is that right? Yes. And I don't know how long ago it came out, but it, can you just tell us a little bit about, I get, I'm assuming that's part of your healing journey. Like what made you decide, hey, I'm going to write a book about all this. And now, which it's a movie, which I don't know if it's been released yet, but just can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, so, so the release is coming up very soon. So we'll talk about that. But okay. um, the book uh, came out in 2018, mm -hmm. uh, late 2018. And how it, it was very therapeutic for me to write it. I bet. Um, that was something that I did not expect, by the way. Uh, but the way that it was born was this men's group that I was going to. Uh, you know, they had prayed me through all this uh, hell that I was walking through in my life. And when my wife and I became pregnant with Zachariah, we were petrified because we had lost our other son, uh, Christian. Um, and... So we were afraid that we were going to have pregnancy complications. And so they uh, walked with me through that and they prayed over the pregnancy. And Zachariah was born, uh, w you know, healthy and well. And after, you know, the restoration of my marriage and the healing and, 
and everything. Um, one of the guys in my men's group uh, came up to me and he said uh, he'd been praying, you know, th me through all this stuff. And he said, "Brother, like I feel like you're gonna write a book." And I'm like, "Brother, I feel like you're smoking crack." He's like, <laughs> you know, like you do realize I'm a police officer, right? And like we hate writing, <laughs> like it's as minimal as possible, like, um, d you know, facts only, no opinion, uh, in our reports, you know, you know, so, uh, it, but like, it was really laid on my, on my heart at that moment to write the book. And, um, God like started surrounding me with people that were writing books and I'm like, okay, like I get it. So, <laughs> okay. I hear you. <laughs> right. Yeah. So here's the interesting thing is that while I was writing the book, I wrote about the faith-based marriage counselor. I wrote about all those details, but I was still too ashamed to write about the police psychologist. Really? Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. I was still early in my journey, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and so I was still too ashamed uh, uh, that I'm like, well, the, the marriage counseling will cover the, the counseling part of it. Like, so at least it's covered. But um, I just finished an afterward um and I actually have published posts on my uh, my Break Every Chain. It's it's all the the Break Every Chain movie Facebook page, but I've published posts on there that acknowledges like the importance of seeing the police psychologist, you know, and how he talked me off the edge, like this when I was was contemplating suicide. Mm -hmm. um, but I just thought that was interesting because while I was writing this book, like I had no idea. I had no idea about the police suicides. I had no idea that it was the number one killer mm. of cops. Um, I felt like I was the only one that had ever struggled like this. Yeah. I'm like, I'm certainly alone. This is such a huge waste of time. Why am I writing this? Like, no one's ever struggled like me. I'm the only screwed up, broken, weak cop. Like, you know, and I was still thinking like that. Uh, but as it, I started to try to market it and, um, you know, started reaching out to like social media groups and things like that. That's when I started getting educated on all these suicides. Wow. So this... you didn't even know any of that until your book was already published. Is that right? Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. So that's even the whole book in and of itself and the release sounds like that was supposed to be a part of your healing journey too. Right. I just like, was like, well, God can use it to maybe to help somebody Yeah. and uh, maybe it'll help another cop. You know, if there's anybody out, out there who is... Uh, struggling or has ever struggled with alcohol or depression or uh, loss, uh, you know, grief, uh, th or maybe a, a married couple that has struggled with infidelity. Um, you know, we know that's rampant in the police culture. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's all these things that like no one ever wants to talk about. And so I'm like, well, maybe it'll help somebody like maybe it'll someone will be helped by by the telling of the story. But uh, God had a purpose for it, and I just had no idea. I had no idea what he was going to do with it. Um, so if you get that feeling in your heart that you're supposed to do something, do it, because mm -hmm. you never know what, what might happen, right? Right. Um, and it just speaks to, like, your courage and bravery, because the fact that you still had that shame around that peace with your police psychologist, but you did it anyway, um, that speaks volumes, really. I appreciate you saying that. I, I feel... Um, I kind of feel, uh, you know, looking back, like I really wish I had put that in the book. So what I did was um, 
I did put an afterword in mm-hmm. the book on the third edition, which is I'm working on it right now. Uh, the publisher like has it and they have to finalize it or whatever, but um, it talks about it. And not only does it talk about it, it talks about the fact that I was ashamed to write it in the book mm. originally. Well, that's so and I'm so going to wait until that's released then before I buy it. So I'm glad I didn't get it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy to send you the the uh, the afterward if, if you do want to get it now. But OK, um, yeah, the problem with that is that like Amazon's got like stockpiles of it. So you could order one when I say here's a green light, it's out and you might still get one. That's not the right version. Oh, I see. So, so I could just go ahead and get it, and then I'll just take you up on your offer and have you send it to me then, the after. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to send you the, the afterword and the epilogue that my wife wrote. <gasps> Ooh, yeah, I'd love to read that. Yeah, so that's like uh, 14 pages that we're adding to the back of the book. Wow, uh, amazing. that she wrote, yeah, which is good because I think, she, you know, she it's just as much her story, obviously, mm-hmm. as it is mine. And um, so... Yeah, it's we're really excited about that. But the movie. Yeah, uh, so let's hear the, about the how movie. Does that happen? Yes. So the movie is absolutely incredible. You can go on IMDb right now and watch the trailer and uh, you'll be blown away if you haven't seen the trailer because uh, it is a faith based film. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to try to minimize that. But at the same time, like it has been killing it in film festivals that are not like Christian film festivals. Uh, it's won five Best Inspirational Film Awards in once uh, Prague, Paris, Las Vegas, New York, and that it's also um, won some Best Actor Awards, and so it's doing like amazing in the film festival run. Um, it's a very high quality film, and it is extremely powerful, very engaging. I can't wait to see it. So. But just back up a minute. How did that happen? So did somebody read your book and just say, we need to make this a movie? Or how, how did that even happen? Well, I had had several people tell me that. Um, and, you know, people will say that and you're like, yeah, yeah. But um, so I started to pursue it on my own. Okay. And, like, I even went to the so far as to um, go to I – I bought a ticket to a Comic-Con in Richmond, Virginia – and I went and met David A.R. White, who is the founder of Pure Flix. He's like big time in all these faith-based films. And I gave him a copy of my book. And I'm like, this is it. Like, he's going to make a movie out of my book. And, well, I never heard from him. <laughs> um, and uh, But I did get to meet him. So I started uh, doing everything I knew how to, how to do, trying to pursue getting it made into a movie. And nothing was happening. So... Stacy and I, my wife and I started to pray like, like, God, you've done a lot with this book. There's cops coming to me behind the scenes all the time that are saying, like, this is my story. Like, thank you for writing this. Like, I now I know I'm not alone. Cops in recovery that, that are, you know, like uh, using it to help other officers. Mm-hmm. And um, we started to pray that, like, that if God wanted to use it in that way, that if if he wanted to, to use it as a movie and tell the story that way, that he would make it happen. And cause we didn't know what else to do. Um, and so a few months out, uh, later we got a phone call from the guy that had narrated my audiobook, um, who also said he thought it should be, um, made into a movie. Um, he's, he was in professional radio for 30 years and he does voiceovers and he reads audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was actually uh, part of a film that this uh, this film company that we ended up working with 
uh, was making. And he said, like, hey, this guy does, like, faith-based films, too. And, like, send me a copy of your book. I'll put it in the hands of the producer, and we'll see what happens. And so the rest is kind of history on that as far as getting it to happen. But um, one thing I was not expecting was I was going to have to raise some money to, to, make, mm-hmm. to make the movie a reality. And so I was told I had to come up with, like, 15 to 20 grand. Um, this was April 2020. Uh, one month after COVID started. And so um, I was like, yeah, that's not happening, but okay. Uh, within two months, we had raised $22,000. Oh, wow. And then uh, the budget actually went up even more than that, and we were able to get all of it. So um, it was all donated. It was it was donated by people who believe in the, the story, who've read the book. Uh, it was donated by um, widows, of officers who died by suicide. Um, and so, you know, that to me was so like touched my heart so much that they would give to this Mm -hmm. because they're so passionate about preventing it for the next, uh, police wife. Wow. Yeah. That just makes it even more of an amazing story. Now I, I am going to have to watch the movie. (laughs) Oh yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely going to love it when it comes out. So, uh, we've been doing some screenings, Mm -hmm. um, and you can actually, if you have a large church and you want to bring it to, to your church, like you can go to breakeverychainmovie.com um, and click on the screenings tab. And there's information there on how you can bring it to your church. But um, we're we're going to, I think it's going to be releasing mid-November. Mm-hmm. I think that, don't quote me on this, but I believe it's going to be around November 15th that will be releasing on streaming, uh, digital, and DVD. Okay, but right now, what people can do if they're interested in learning about it is go where again? So the we- uh, the website for the film is breakeverychainmovie.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are working on cutting a tr- version of the trailer that we're going to release ourselves. Uh, somehow IMDb got a hold of it, and they won't, they won't take it down. And we're not really sure how that happened. But if you want to see the trailer, it's there, so I'm going to embrace it. Go on IMDb's website, look up Break Every Chain, and you can see the trailer. It's about a... um, The trailer, I guarantee, will give you goosebumps, Mm. Um, especially um, if you've been in law enforcement any length of time. Okay, and you're saying if someone is interested in bringing a screening to their church, perhaps, they can get information on the site about about that, too? Yes, at BreakEveryChainMovie.com. Yep. Great. And, of course, Amazon, you can get the book. Yeah, that's available at like lots of places, but Amazon's probably the way you're going to get it the fastest, yeah. Okay, and if anybody wants to specifically get in touch with you, I'm assuming still go on the same website and, and contact you there? Yes, um, breakeverychainmovie.com. You can, um, there's a contact form there, and uh, my the email address is breakeverychainmovie at gmail.com. Pretty easy. Um one thing I wanted to mention is uh, if you do, or if you are interested in getting a copy of the book, uh, just there's another version of another book called Break Every Chain with a author named John something. Make sure you get the right one. It's the one with the police car on the cover. Uh, it's by Jonathan Hickory, uh, Break Every Chain. The subtitle is, uh, so it's Break Every Chain. The subtitle is A Police Officer's Battle with Alcoholism depression and devastating loss and the true story of how God changes life forever. Okay. And I'm curious now I'm going to have to find out what that other book is about. <laughs> the other, yeah, the other book is, uh, it's, it's, um, kind of a, 
deep spiritual book about like breaking demonic chains and things like that. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And, and one thing before, uh, before we finish, if somebody is listening and they're struggling or their loved one is struggling, uh, what advice, I mean, I know it's hard to just pick one thing, but what, what would you say to them? You're not alone. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that is the most cliche thing that we can say because I recently saw like a, a meme that said, you know, when you think you're not alone and it showed like a picture of, you know, a bunch of cops in formation or something. And the problem with that is that so oftentimes when we go to other police officers, uh, we do feel alone because they're not the best people to talk about our struggles in law enforcement. Yeah. You would think that they would be the best person, people to talk about, but even some of the peer support uh, people aren't always the best. And so um, if you are struggling, you know, even if you're not in law enforcement, uh, if you're struggling, if you're feeling like uh, depressed, if you're feeling, um, you know, uh, like you don't matter, um, like you're drowning and everyone else is flourishing, um, know that uh, that is something that is normal and you are not alone and it is something that you can heal from. It doesn't mean that it's something that you have to, like, struggle with every day. I mean, every day, yes, every day is a battle, but uh, going to get um, help from the right people is what's key. And then once you start to heal, then living a life of balanced resilience is how you kind of keep moving forward through life Mm -hmm. and enjoy the life and live free in the life that you were given. And so what I mean by that is, you know, go see a counselor or a chaplain, or a psychologist, or a psychiatrist, you know, it's okay to be on medication. Like, there is no shame in any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is that, you know, you need to heal from it. And when we need to heal, we need to make sure that we see the right people to do that. Mm, That's such good advice. Thank you so much, Jonathan. We really appreciate you sharing your story and your time. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Wendy, for having me on. I love what you're doing. Yes, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Like Jonathan said, we deserve to live the life we've been given. We deserve to live free and you are not alone. To get more information or to contact Jonathan directly, you can go to BreakEveryChainMovie.com. You can also check him out on the IMBD website to view the trailer. And of course, go to Amazon.com to purchase his book. If you find value in this episode, please share it, give us a review. And if you'd like to be notified of future episodes and want to receive our future newsletter, you can subscribe on our Podbean website or email us at Wendy at BlueLineYoga.com. I'd love to hear from you with questions, suggestions for future guests, or topics you'd like to hear about.